Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 22. And this week we'll be covering the book of Nehemiah, the book of Esther, and we'll be going a few chapters into the book of Job. All right, so let's make our way into the book of Nehemiah. And there are a few things you need to pay attention to when reading through Nehemiah. First, Nehemiah has much to say about prayer. Nehemiah was a praying man who, more times than not, took all matters to God in prayer as a first response, not a last resort. Statistically, in this small book of 406 verses, prayer fills up 46 verses, or 11% of the entire book. So prayer is important here. Second, Nehemiah's main concern was the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Third, there are always enemies, within and without, that can create obstacles from accomplishing your work for God. Fourth, Working for and with God requires actual work. It's not easy and can be very difficult at times, but it's well worth it in the end. Now, the book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah being informed by his brother Hanani of the desolation of Jerusalem. If you remember back in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had laid ruin to Jerusalem, and after the return of Ezra that focuses on rebuilding the temple, there was a small effort made to rebuild the city's defenses, but the efforts were unsuccessful. And so when Nehemiah hears this news, he begins to pray about it. And we're told he spends four months in prayer over it. He confesses the sins of Israel and begins to pray for favor in the eyes of the king. Because at this time, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, a trusted position in the administration of Artaxerxes. In chapter 2, we find that one day as Nehemiah was serving Artaxerxes, the king noticed that Nehemiah was saddened. And when asked about it, he boldly spoke to the king, telling him all that was troubling him. And to his amazement, he found the king was most glad to permit Nehemiah a leave of absence. Furthermore, the king went the extra mile in helping Nehemiah's cause by providing official letters endorsing him and his mission, ordering his provincial government to grant Nehemiah whatever he needed to get the task done. And so when Nehemiah arrived and presented himself to the governor in the province where Jerusalem was located, two specific enemies already early on begin to rear their heads. Their names were Sanballat and Tobiah. Meanwhile, Nehemiah rode his horse around the perimeter of Jerusalem by night in order to assess the damage and determine what it would take to re-erect the fallen walls of the city. He then made his report to the city officials and urged them to get on with the project. You see, a project of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem was a major undertaking, and a project of this magnitude required careful planning and the backing of leadership that a seasoned man like Nehemiah could provide. So, in chapter 3, Nehemiah's strategy was to assign different villages and different family groups to various sections of the wall, divided roughly into segments between the seven gates of the city. Now, no class, occupation, age, or gender was exempted, for this was God's work, the benefits of which would be enjoyed by everyone. And even when a person is doing the will of God, there can be problems and stiff opposition. And Nehemiah faced a series of people and situations that could have brought the rebuilding uh, the rebuilding project to a halt, but it didn't. Opposition came from the enemies on the outside and from the Jews themselves on the inside. But Nehemiah, a man of prayer and wisdom, brought the people through the difficult times. And so as you read chapters 4, 5, and 6, you find there are different types of opposition that Nehemiah faced. I'll list them out for you here. The first thing he faced was ridicule in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Then there's threats of war in chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. Then there's discouragement in verse 10 of chapter 4. Then there's fear, chapter 4, verses 11 through 26. 
Now you move to chapter 5, the main opposition is selfishness. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it's about compromise. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, it's about slander. Chapter 6, verses 10 to 14, it's about trickery. And the last few verses of chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it's about intrigue. So there are nine different types of opposition that Nehemiah faced in this building project. But in the midst of all that opposition, the work of rebuilding the wall was completed in just 52 days. That's a testimony to what God can do through a man of prayer. Now, having finished the walls in chapter 7, Nehemiah took steps to ensure that the city would remain secure by, excuse me, by appointing guards. And the rest of chapter 7 provides a record of the Jews who returned with, with Shizbasher, Zerubbabel, and uh, Yeshua, the high priest. And this list is almost identical to the list that you probably already read in Ezra chapter 2. And you might be wondering why it's included here. It seems that Nehemiah was concerned to repopulate the city of Jerusalem with exiles of pure Jewish descent. And therefore, he initiated uh, genealogical enrollment of the nobles, officials, and peoples. And I guess in the process, he discovered the enrollment of those who had returned um, to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel, um, and that was a point where he started. So it seems that he used this list as a starting point. Now, the primary task for which Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem was to rebuild the walls of the city. And with this major objective already accomplished, one might have expected Nehemiah to quickly return to his comfortable position as Artaxerxes' cupbearer. But Nehemiah was so concerned for the spiritual welfare of the Jews as he was for the physical well-being of Jerusalem. So that means in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he is seen here as ministering with Ezra. The Mosaic law um, specified that every seven years the people of Israel were to assemble and listen to the reading of the law. Uh, you could find that information in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And chapter 8 of Nehemiah is an example of that passage in Deuteronomy 31. And so we find this picture of Ezra here standing on a high wooden platform otherwise known as a pulpit, we might say. He reads the word of God to the people all morning long. And with him stood a number of assistants who clarified the reading and meaning of the text for those Aramaic-speaking Jews, who ironically no longer spoke Hebrew in daily life. God's words brought the people to tears and deep conviction, but this was a day of joy and sorrow. Excuse me, this was a day of joy and not of sorrow. The next day's reading brought up the Feast of Tabernacles, and since this was the month wherein they were supposed to observe it, they did so, as the law required for seven days. Each day, Ezra would read a portion of the law to them. As you move into chapter 9, the people were not content to go about their business as usual after hearing the word of God. They realized they needed to hear more and get right with God more completely. So two days after the solemn assembly in chapter 8, verse 18, the people were still mourning over their sins. This was a genuine spiritual revival. They gathered for another reading of the law, standing and confessing their sins for three hours. Did you get that? Three hours. This confession time was followed by the Levitical leaders who led the people in a time of prayer, possibly the next day. And this prayer emphasized the mighty deeds of old that God performed for the benefit of his people. God's covenant with Abraham, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest. It all focused on the continual manifestation of God's grace and his love in dealing with his often disobedient and disloyal people. And after this lengthy prayer, the leaders attached their signatures to it in chapter 10. It was followed by a vow from the rest of the people to follow all the commands of the law. 
Now, when the Jews returned to their homeland after the Babylonian exile, they avoided setting up their homes in the city of Jerusalem since it lay in ruins and had no walls. But now, with the rebuilding of the walls complete, Nehemiah was concerned that Jerusalem, which was the worship center for the Jews, would be unoccupied. He was also interested in having the city repopulated with citizens of pure Jewish descent, like we said earlier. And so this is the concern in chapter 11, and it kind of bleeds over into chapter 12. Also at the midpoint of chapter 12, we read that the walls of the city were finally able to be dedicated. And that dedication ceremonies, all of them, are described in the second half of chapter 12. Now chapter 13 is the last chapter of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah had to return to Persia for a brief period of time. And when he left, much of his influence left with him. And so during his absence, certain sins were once again tolerated in national life. But when Nehemiah returned, he zealously dealt with the offenders. And Nehemiah knew that to tolerate clear violations of the law would inevitably bring discipline from God. And so with the reforms of Nehemiah, guess what? The Old Testament closes historically. There is no inspired record for the next 400 years of Israel's history. The silence of God was finally broken when the angel Gabriel appeared in the holy place of the temple, announcing the coming birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. So Nehemiah, the book, ends this portion, this historical portion of the Old Testament. Now, we move on to another story, and that story is contained in the book of Esther. A few things to look for when reading through the book of Esther. First, the story of Esther is best placed between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. Second, the name God does not appear one time in the entire book. That's right, you won't find it. But God is directing the narrative behind the scenes the entire time. Third, the book explains the Feast of Purim that the Jews observe today. Fourth, like Ruth, the book of Esther is an illustration. Ruth illustrated redemption, whereas Esther illustrates providence, God's providence. Fifth, Esther is a comedy, as far as the genres go. Not a comedy like we would expect it. A comedy is a narrative with a dramatic reversal. Irony is what we might call it today. So, the setting of the book of Esther is in the city of Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. In chapter 1, early on in the reign of Xerxes, he decided to celebrate some recent successes by hosting a lavish feast for all his officials. And when he had become intoxicated with all the wine that was there, some of his officials challenged the king to summon his famed queen, Vashti, so all could admire her famed beauty. Well, Vashti was not too noble to be put on such a display and so refused the command from the king. The king was dumbfounded, not knowing what to do. Xerxes turns to his officials for advice, and they pointed out that her insubordination would not be a good example for the rest of the wives in the kingdom. Therefore, the only remedy was to depose his queen and then start the process of searching for another who would be more tolerable to his ways. This decision sets up the stage for Esther to enter the picture in chapter number two. In chapter number two, we find out that Mordecai, who was a Benjamite, who was the leader of the Jewish population in Susa, had a beautiful cousin named Esther. Um, Esther's name is Hadassah in Hebrew. He had adopted her after her parents had died. And Esther was selected along with others to be added to the king's harem. And so before long, she became a favorite of the king and was provided with the best of everything that she needed. However, she did not disclose her Jewish identity following the counsel of Mordecai. 
The Persian custom was that the king's harem was on a rotating basis, and when it was Esther's turn, she so impressed Xerxes that he made Esther the queen in place of Vashti. Now, because the Jews were being treated more favorably in the Persian kingdom, some backlash started to rise. Some anti-Semitism started to rise. And Haman, the villain of the story, makes his appearance here in chapter number three. We find out that Mordecai had refused to show homage to Haman. And as time went by, this really angered Haman, so much so that he decided that he would push forth an agenda to exterminate all the Jews. The Jews were falsely accused of being the cause of all the problems in the kingdom. And Xerxes the king gullibly accepted this analysis, authorizing Haman to draw up a plan to solve the problem. The plan that Haman adopted was that on the 13th day of the month, all local officials throughout the entire empire were to put all Jews to death. Now, hearing the devastating news, Mordecai and many Jews began to fast and pray for God's intervention in chapter number four. Esther contacts Mordecai to find out the specific details, and Mordecai responds to her with a plea that she use her influence with the king to stop the massacre. She agrees to go before the king, but she asks Mordecai and all the people to fast for three days before she made her appeal. At the end of three days, Esther laid her life on the line and entered the throne room of the king without permission an act that guaranteed death for anyone. However, the scene is different because Xerxes was far from upset. He was delighted to see Esther. Chapter 5 tells us that the king was willing to grant her whatever she requested, no matter how ridiculous it might seem. And all she wanted to do was to host a banquet, one at which Haman would be honored. It would be this banquet in which she would make her official request to the king. Haman was so thrilled and his ego was overflowing on his way home to tell the news to his wife, Mordecai, once again, did not show any homage to Haman. Haman is extremely angered now and his wife suggests that he build some gallows in which to hang Mordecai for his insubordination. Now, the story begins to take a drastic turn. Haman had gone to bed with excitement of the upcoming feast to celebrate him and his accomplishments. But in the palace, the king could not sleep that night. Chapter 6 tells us that the king called in one of his servants to read from the official chronicles of the king. This would definitely solve the king's insomnia problem. And as this servant is reading the past events of the kingdom, he comes to a section about Mordecai the Jew, who had prevented an assassination plot against the king. And the king asked if Mordecai had ever been rewarded for such an act, and he was told that nothing had been done to reward his loyalty. At that moment, the king asked if any of his officials were in the court, and they replied that Haman had just come in. You see, because Haman was getting ready to pitch his idea of hanging Mordecai to the king. And so the king asks Haman, What should I do to honor a man who pleases me, the king says. Well, Haman, obviously and pridefully, he assumed that the king was speaking of himself. So Haman said, you should pull out all the stops for him and honor him in so many different ways. And so the king agreed and instructed that it be done for, you ready? Mordecai, the Jew. I'm sure that Haman's mouth dropped in amazement. He was dumbfounded. But nonetheless, he carried out the king's orders. And after going home to tell his wife the news, the king's officials bring him back to the palace for the banquet that Esther was about to host in his honor. So in chapter 7, Esther officially gives her request to the king. She asks for the king, for her Jewish brothers and sisters, to be released from the decree to kill all the Jews, a decree that the king had signed into law. Well, immediately, 
he asked Esther who was responsible for this decree because the king obviously didn't know what he had done. And Esther points to Haman. The king leaves the room and goes into the garden to cool off. But when he returns, he finds Haman begging Esther for his life. The king mistakenly takes this act of Haman as an act of advances toward his wife, and he orders at that very moment that Haman be hanged. The irony is that Haman is hanged on the same gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Now in chapter 8, again Esther goes before the king pleading for him to reverse his precious decree, excuse me, his previous decree. But as the law says, he cannot reverse it. However, he can decree another law, one that will allow the Jewish people to arm themselves and defend themselves to survive on that fateful day. Encouraged beyond measure, the Jews began to rejoice that they were now given a chance to fend for themselves on the approaching day, Adar 13th. When the day finally comes in chapter 9, the enemies of the Jews became so paralyzed with fear, they were easily defeated. Even some of the king's officials throughout the kingdom helped them. And the news of victory is reported to the king by Esther. And then the king asks Esther what else she needed him to do for her. She says that the only enemy that remained was the household of Haman. And she requested that the Jews be able to take Haman's ten sons and hang them on the same gallows that Haman was hung on. The king agreed, and the threat of extinction had now officially stopped with this final act. The day after the deliverance of the Jews became a special day in the Jewish calendar, a day of rejoicing, a day of exchanging gifts. This festival is called Purim, and it was authorized by Mordecai as a memorial of God's protection of the Jewish people that day against Haman and his men. It is the Jewish people's most festive and popular holiday, much like Christmas would be for us or for any person, whether they're a believer in Christ or not. And the word Purim is the plural form of the Persian word Pur. Uh, and that means a lot. And it has reference back to chapter 3, verse 7, where Haman had cast a lot to determine the day in which he would plan to wipe out the Jews. And so the name Purim became symbolic. It was a symbolic reminder to the Jews of how God used circumstances, specifically casting the lots to deliver them back in 473 B.C. In the last chapter of Esther, Mordecai is promoted to become the prime minister, second only to King Xerxes himself. This has echoes of the book of Genesis, where Joseph is elevated to become second in command in Pharaoh's court. This is such a good story that ends well. Now, this concluded the book of Esther and the completion of another genre from the Old Testament. The book of Esther finishes the historical section of the Old Testament, and that historical section was Joshua through Esther. The next book we come to is the book of Job, and it begins this section of the Old Testament we call the wisdom books or the poetry books. And we call it poetry because a lot of the material in these books are in the form of poetry and prose. And these books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So let's talk about Job. A few things we need to think about as we read through the book of Job. First, the events of the book of Job occurred during the patriarchal age, that is, the days of Abraham. So that's when these events are happening. It's not when the book was written, but it's when the events of the book are transpiring. Second, there is a grand comparison in this book between human wisdom and God's wisdom. Job and his friends think they know what is going on, but God's wisdom says otherwise. Third, one of the popular themes in this book is suffering the suffering of the righteous. The question of why seemed to be asked a lot in this book. And I say, why not? 
isn't suffering, how God molds us and makes us into his image. It might be messy and it might be heart-wrenching, but life isn't fair. And Job got firsthand knowledge of that very thing. Fourth, this book is about understanding our humanity. Not the temporal aspect to our lives, but the very nature of how God has created us. The point being that instead of dealing with us in retribution, which is what the characters in the book believed, you know, evil for evil and good for good, God always deals with us in grace. He initiates favor to us without our deserving it. Why does he do that? Well, because he's God and we're not. This is the easy answer. Sixth, this book teaches us that it's perfectly fine to be content with not knowing the answer. So, that leads us right into the first couple chapters of Job. Job chapters 1 and 2 form the introduction to the book. They orient us to the situation at hand. Job is a righteous man, and Satan explains to God that Job is only righteous because he is being blessed by God. And so this sets up the test wherein God allows Satan to wreak havoc on Job's properties, his goods, and even his children. This, however, does not move Job from his determination to serve God. Satan wants to take things a step further and asks to touch Job's body causing him severe pain and suffering. And God allows, and Job suffers. Despite his wife's advice that he curse God and die, he continued to remain faithful. Now some of Job's friends hear about what happens, and they come from neighboring lands to lament with him and to give him some advice. And what happens is chapters 3 through chapters 31 is a series of dialogues that Job carries on with his friends, his visitors. It goes from chapters 3 all the way to chapter 31. As each of his friends delivers their speech about Job, Job responds to each of them. The common theme of all the discussion is the conclusion from Job's friend that Job's suffering was because of sin on his part. All right, now I know we're supposed to cover a few more chapters in the book of Job up through chapter 4, I think, according to our reading. But we're going to save that for next week. And so we're going to save this large section of chapters 3 through 31 for next week. That way we can handle everything at one time. So that concludes uh, what we need to talk about for this week. As always, remember, if you have any questions, email them to BibleReading at LMBC.org. And I will talk with you all next week.